Hello and welcome to episode 12 of season 2 of Guido Talks. That's right, we're back for another week to talk through all the exciting goings-on in Parliament and further afield. Everything that you've seen and some behind the scenes from the Guido Forks website. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by Paul Staines, the founder and editor of Guido Forks, along with Christian Kaugi, a reporter here. So... Let's kick off right away with one of the biggest news items this week, and that is we are leaving lockdown next week and we're going to be placed in a new tier system. That was all announced on Thursday. Now, how did that announcement go, Kalgi? Uh, oh, it went marvellously. Um, apart from if you discount the fact the website broke entirely after 10 minutes, many people still reporting outages, they may not know what tier their local area is going into. Uh, but thankfully, we were on hand to provide the full list. We were first with this information, um, giving people the full breakdowns, uh, huge upgrading of severity uh, across the country. There are now only three parts of the UK, only 700,000 uh, English citizens under tier one, which is already stricter than the original tier one, uh, and a massive uh, shooting up of those in tier two and major city regions like um, Birmingham and Manchester going into tier three, which is, I mean, in many ways indistinguishable from the full lockdown, especially in regards to uh, hospitality. Um, in fact, I'd actually observed that what has happened here with, with the transition from what is branded a full national lockdown to a tiered system is some of the most politically savvy uh, strategy we've seen from the government because Boris has been able to boast, yes, we are definitively leaving national lockdown on the 2nd of December, but for tens and tens of millions of people really not that much of a difference in their day-to-day -day lives if they're going into tier three. Yeah, it hasn't really felt like we've been in a lockdown at all. I've been walking about um, a bit in London recently, which I, which I gather I think is against the rules if it's not explicitly for exercise. But my God, if, 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 it's, if it's against the rules to leave your house not for exercise, then there are a lot of very dawdling exercises about in London. I mean, it's extraordinary walking around and seeing people just basically acting normally, big groups, um, walking around, making the most of all the shops that are open. And I was surprised at actually how many shops are open and serving people outside and that sort of stuff. It feels like we're sort of in a state of semi-lockdown, not total lockdown. And we'll be moving most of the country will be moving into a state of semi-lockdown again. It's not going to be that much of a change for millions of people. It's been an odd one because unlike the first lockdown, I've been completely, you know, doing my duty for Queen and Country, sitting on my ass in front of Netflix every day. But um, I am very aware that many, many people are not. And some people are living their lives pretty normally, bar not being able to go to the pub. Um, and so I'm certainly looking forward to a liberalisation there. Although you say that, there is a pub near me that is very much open. It's just they're serving through a little hatch and you can't, you can't buy a pint directly from them. You have to phone them up. 
you walk up to there, you have to ask them on the phone, and then they can hand you a delivered pint. And there's groups of people that stand outside there, not that differently to uh, how we were before the lockdown. So, I mean, it's all a bit of a, it's all a bit of a nonsense, really. I, I saw one uh, Twitter picture of a pub that says, orders cannot be te- accepted for less than 30 seconds beforehand. Text this number. So, I mean, there's Will's word. Absolutely. Stand up your text your order, walk up to the counter. Well, we're talking about all of this um, sort of state of lockdown and really not changing all that much. Um, one of the most concerning stories this week is that um, we dug into the OBR analysis that Rishi Sunak based his uh, statement on, his financial statement on, um, which was its central scenario of how the country's economy is going to be working over the next year is that not until June will we see these measures relaxed. We're going to be in a state of sort of uh, medium to high alert level right the way through June. That's the OBR analysis. Now, um, we put that out as a story. And and just after we did that, the Conservative Party met for a 1922 committee meeting. And um, that story was put by an enterprising backbench Tory MP to the Prime Minister, at which point he said that he was much more optimistic than the Office of Budget Responsibility. So suddenly, within the space of hours, we seem to have had a bit of a turnaround Um, from the government in terms of their expectations of these restrictions. But it's a concerning thread and one that we'll be definitely keeping an eye on uh, over the next weeks and months. Because you would expect this stuff will... Very much related to that point is the optimism about the AstraZeneca drug is misplaced. The US is not going to approve it. And all this nonsense about, oh, with half a dose, it's better than uh, with a full dose... That doesn't sound credible to me. And in fact, people in the pharma world have told me off the record that of the three vaccines announced by the West, Medina, Pfizer, and uh, AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca is the weakest, and it's the one that Britain's ordered the most of. That's not to say it won't be effective enough for most of us, but it's definitely not the best uh, drug according to the testing that's been done so far. But of course, with the OBR, their excuse as to why their um, forecasts were so pessimistic in terms of those uh, restrictions that we're going to be living under for the next six or seven months, their excuse was that they did that before the Oxford vaccine was announced. So after the Pfizer and after the Moderna one uh, had been announced. So it it already seemed like we're getting this stream of vaccines. We're probably going to see more than these three anyway. Um, And so we've got these all trickling through and yet the OBR still decided that we'd somehow be in a state of of lockdown or quasi lockdown um, until June. But that was just one aspect of the spending review. So, Kaugi, can you talk us through some of the other big headline-grabbing measures? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, you know, we've talked about pessimistic civil service forecasts, and they were there in abundance in Rishi's uh, spending review. Uh, we've now had it confirmed, almost entirely confirmed, that the projection is that we'll have seen an, an economic contracting of 11.3% uh, 
uh, this year. Uh, and it will, the economy will be 3% permanently smaller in 2025. UK borrowing is now up to 394 billion quid this year, which is four times as much as the figure that shocked the country under Gordon Brown's premiership during the 2008-09 financial crash. Um, and, and we're going to have 7.5% unemployment. So, you know, things are rosy. Uh, and then we came on to the actual measures uh, and we've got, we were anticipating a big public sector wage freeze. And frankly, for a lot of conservatives, what came was overly generous um, because yes, there is going to be a public sector wage freeze, but that excludes doctors, nurses, and people working in the health sector. And it also excludes any uh, public sector workers earning below the median wage of £24,000 a year. So the majority of public sector workers are going to uh, get a pay rise. Of course, that's in spite of many of their private sector uh, comrades going under the waterline. Departmental spending is going to rise by 3.8%. That's £14.8 billion. Uh, Of course, a a massive amount also being allocated on defence spending. The health budget's up by £7 billion. And then, then essentially, we got to the bit of of austerity crumbs that that Rishi threw to the Tory um, uh, thinkers, and that was the reduction of of foreign aid from 0.7% to 0.5%. And then we got a, you know, a surprise rabbit out of the hat with this 4 billion levelling up fund for the Red Wall. So actually, what was uh, set out in the spending review uh, you know, if you just sat down and watched that without understanding the economic context, you wouldn't for one moment think that the economy has hit an iceberg and is going under at a terrifying rate. And um, it didn't please many Tory thinkers, sort of traditional backbenchers, those in the, the wonk world, did it? I mean, what what's about it, four it, billion it, that's been saved from foreign aid? Um, and, and and that's supposed to cover the hundreds of billions that the Chancellor just wins. <laughs> the 400 spent. billion deficit. <laughs> if we've hit an iceberg, we're in the bar ordering trebles for everyone on the house. Because <laughs> the spend- it's got to be ordered with a substantial meal, though. That's the <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, well, actually, we should probably not talk so much about all the tiers. We've got a lot of stuff to get through. So, Calgi, can you tell us the big immediate political consequence oh. of this foreign aid cut? Yes, of course, we had a resignation. Um, not one of the exciting ones. Unfortunately, it was just the Baroness, but it was a resignation of, of Baroness Silk from uh, the FCDO, who's a proper sort of die in the wall Cameroon. Uh, and uh, was fighting for 0.7%. She'd been on resignation watch from earlier that morning, uh, and about an hour after submitting the letter, um, she was out. But um, I, I wouldn't anticipate that the, the Tory folds in the, in the, in the Commons uh, will be too much of, a, of an issue away from the usual lot. But I think the Lords is going to be pretty tricky on this, especially given how many of the sort of the Cameroon era you know, grand 
these have been moved up into the Lords um, and they're all there waiting and ready to ping pong this back for a few months. And of course, the Tories don't have a majority in the Lords anyway. Um, there's there's a lot of um, that. There's a super majority of Remainers, whether they're Lib Dem, Crossbench, or Labour, and they there tends to be quite a lot of crossover between that sort of worldview uh, and the very massive from Christian, far be from me to question a graduate of Lord North's constitutional law. How can the Lords? block a finance bill well is it a finance i mean there, there are two there are two contrasting things here because on the one hand it could be argued to be a finance bill on the other hand of course it is a direct u-turn on a manifesto pledge so uh there's no hope at all of the government using the salisbury convention well, uh, to, not, to get it through well, so, arguably I've, I've argued this with a few people uh, including journalists it's they're not abandoning their stated intention, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter, is to temporarily pause it, not to abandon the target. So I, I put I think it's just they could argue, whether you believe them or not, that it's just <laughs> a, a financial statement mm. to on. Anyway, mm. query that. Well well. <laughs> We will keep an eye on that as it goes forward. One of the other things that was um, a bit contentious in this budget is that while just under half of, of the public sector saw their pay frozen, there was nothing explicitly in the spending statement about MP pay. And this was an issue that was building quite a lot off the back of our campaign over the course of this week, so much so that the Prime Minister himself addressed it on, I believe, Tuesday. Um, and then several uh, members of Parliament stood up to ask both the Prime Minister in PMQs and then Rishi Sunak in, um, in the questions following his statement um, about the issue of MP pay. Um, and they all seemed pretty um, opposed to the idea, but none of them would commit to legislating about it. It was all about trying to persuade the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority to not grant a pay rise. And this is what Rishi Sunak said in his response to Sir Peter Bottomley. And uh, his last point, Mr Speaker, I can tell him that the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster has written on behalf of the government to its uh, uh, in advance of uh, the statement just to inform them of the government's approach to public sector pay uh, and ask them to take that into consideration when they decide what they would like to do. Obviously, they are an independent body. Uh, so Michael Gove wrote to IPSA to ask to not be given a pay rise, but this is making MPs look much more feeble than they actually are. Parliament is sovereign. If they genuinely didn't want a pay rise and wanted to guarantee that they wouldn't get one rather than just asking Ipsa nicely, Rishi Sunak could have said, and we will legislate to stop MPs getting a pay rise. It's totally within their power to. And yet they seem to rather like the idea that they that it's out of their control, that if they're going to be given lots more money, that's, that's totally up to an independent body. Um, this was building, though, throughout the week. And, and Kalgi, can you tell us a bit about um, the, the MPs who started coming out and saying that they'd, uh, they'd disavow one if it was given? Yeah, I mean, I think we're now up to between uh, 60 and 70 
uh, Tory MPs, uh, certainly the upper end echelons of that, uh, who have explicitly said they don't want the pay rise. Uh, we'd collected, I think, about a dozen. We'd had MPs writing to us, uh, disavowing the move. And then we saw a letter uh, from Tory uh, new intake, uh, Deanna Davison, halfway through the week. And that got, uh, I think, over 60 uh, additional signatures. So there is a, a huge movement here, but the the problem is that a lot of MPs uh, seem to think that there's a binary option uh, between having IPSA and abolishing IPSA. And I don't think anyone, any one of us wants MPs to go back to the old, uh, you know, expenses system. But there is there is an obvious uh, point to be made, which is there should be a way for MPs to formally uh, reject a pay rise from entering their bank account. Because at the moment, they've only got two options. They can either bow and scrape before the unelected head of IPSA and ask him to not do one across the board, or they receive the pay rise and have to privately pledge to give it to charity which obviously is, is voluntary, it's unaccountable, they might do it one year and then take it the next years. Um, so there needs to be reform and it's a massive oversight and hopefully, hopefully something can be built from this spread of feeling within the House of Commons this year to see a reform going forward. Although obviously number 10 are not very keen to put forward legislation because there are a lot of backbenchers who quite quietly do want a bit more money, very obviously, no matter what they might say in public. Um, but this brings us on to the whole question of parliamentary standards or, or standards in public life and ministerial standards. Um, and Paul, there was a story to do with that earlier in the week as well. Um, can you talk us through that? Yes, uh, the PM's advisor on ethics, Sir Alex Allen, resigned after the PM said, thank you very much for your report, saying, pretty can tell I was guilty of bullying, I don't agree, I'm the Prime Minister, I have the final decision, so no thanks. So Sir Alex Allen resigns, and there was quite a hoo-ha about it. The press is up in arms, and pretty can tell who has... Let's be fair, a lot of enemies uh, across politics uh, was under fire. And I think that if people knew that Sir Alex Allen wasn't quite the straight facts that people are making out, they might take a different view about this. Um, Pretty Patel is guilty of being forceful, shouting and swearing at underlings. What kind of boss would do that, eh, boys? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is just yeah, just absolute snowflakery. Now, I know you have to be careful in human, human resources nowadays, but uh, it was over the top. And I think the Prime Minister was right to refuse it. And Alex Allen, we've been digging into, and we'll have some more to say about it. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Um, there was, of course, more staffing changes in number 10. One of the bigger stories that happened um, on Thursday was a new number 10 chief of staff came in unexpectedly for some early, um, just a mere week or so after Eddie Lister was appointed as an interim chief of staff. Uh, Calgi, can you talk us through that? 
Yeah, of course, readers uh, and, and watchers won't uh, won't have missed the uh, thing that exploded a couple of weeks ago when obviously Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings walked out. And, and actually, it all focused around this quite obscure uh, appointment to a chief of staff who it, it's very much hoped will, from an organisational point of view, get the number 10 train back on the tracks and focused on delivering those manifesto commitments uh, and provide a bit of focus to to the programme. Uh, of course, uh, readers will be unaware that, uh, unfortunately, on, on Thursday, we became aware uh, that the appointment was about to be uh, made. Uh, we were writing up the story uh, as it happened. In fact, I think we, we were given a few... Uh, anonymous descriptors. We knew it was going to be a man. We knew it was going to be a former civil servant. And we were told that it's someone uh, outside of the box, but not in a conventional sense. And actually, I don't think anyone would have guessed because in the end, we've got a guy called Dan Rosenfield, uh, who is a former PPS to Alistair Darling and uh, George Osborne, um, a uh, and, and uh, former banker also, and uh, a, a Jewish uh, activist, you know, anti-racism activist. Um, and I think he probably ticks a lot of boxes. But for those of you who liked the chaos and the, uh, <laughs> the the laughs and the rows of the Cummings administration, it's going to be a bit more head down, bureaucratic, solemn uh, from now on. This is really a very straight bat, boring pick to sort of balance out um, perhaps some of the more eccentric elements of Boris's management style. You sort of do need that yin and yang, I suppose. You've got um, back in City Hall, you had um, Sir Eddie Lister, um, who was sort of the the sort of straight-faced side to the Boris administration while Boris would do the big picture sort of um, stuff. He'd be there with the detail. And I think this will probably reflect that. Now, I, I, I think, Calgi, you tweeted an anecdote about our new incoming Downing Street Chief of Staff um, um, some, somehow doing an all-nighter and being more engaged in his work in the morning or something. What was, what was that? <laughs> It was, it, there was a, a naturally went through the Google archives about this guy once it had been announced. And one of the best anecdotes I found was that uh, he get, he got back one night at about two o'clock in the morning after a very long day at work. And it was his little boy's birthday the next day. And he bought him a trampoline that needed assembling. And he was determined to get it done. So it was there ready for his boy to wake up the next day. And it took him, uh, I think, an, uh, about an hour and a half. He finished at quarter to four. He was at his desk back in the treasury at half six. And he claimed that the, the activity of doing this was actually made him more alert for a day's work than he would otherwise have been. Uh, now, I don't believe that, but he is certainly... <laughs> Um, very dedicated. I was personally very fascinated to find out that he was the guy who uh, had to interrupt a meeting in 2009 with Alistair Darling and tap him on the shoulder and inform him that the CEO of RBS needed to talk uh, because the shares had dropped by 40%. And that was, I think, essentially the, the moment that Alistair Darling knew that he needed to do a bank bailout. So this guy has 
a, a pretty incredible um, role in, in British political history for the last decade and a bit, but very much a backroom guy. Well, moving from the intricacies of Downing Street up to Scotland, what's going on north of the border this week, Paul? Well, Nicola Sturgeon has achieved what many SNP extremists have always hoped and wished for. She has banned the English recovering Scotland. To be fair to for health protection reasons, she is banning movement between local authority areas, which obviously means and includes the internal border between Scotland and England, as well as Northern Ireland. So much tighter, but also plays into uh, s- uh, certain Scottish hopes on the part of her more extreme flank. And um, that all comes to an end uh, when the lockdown ends, um, just before Christmas, because all the four nations got around the table and for once agreed to uh, have the same which will allow um, people from Wales and Scotland who are living in England to go home and vice versa. So at least we have one Christmas uh, bit of concord between the few the home nations. Five days. We get Boris of... and Nicola to have a football match over the border <laughs> and then go back after. And then go back to well, war. Scotland's team are doing it at the moment. I don't think she's going to want to do that. <laughs> Although it was it was peculiar because you do get the sense, as you were saying, Paul, that this is something that the SNP and a lot of their activists have wanted for a long, long time. They were almost um, sort of gleefully pointing out examples. I think it was Ian Blackford or Angus Robertson, one of them, it was Blackford, on Twitter. Yeah. It was Ian Blackford, yeah, was Blackford on Twitter. He quote tweeted some random photographer who'd gone up to photograph the Northern Lights in Scotland, quote tweeting saying, what are you doing in Scotland? You shouldn't be here. You're English. And it's, it's the venom by which mm. these SNP politicians are sort of shouting at people who aren't Scottish is, is quite extraordinary. And and then if it, if and you then think, if they were doing it to it any other... Out. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and then it turned out that that photographer had actually moved to Scotland a couple of weeks ago. So he was perfectly entitled to be doing what he was doing. Uh, so it looks like Ian Blackford had failed his audition for the Muck Stasi or whatever <laughs> they're trying to go do up there. It is just sectarianism. It's just <laughs> xenophobia. Just because someone happens to be born in England doesn't mean that they're not necessarily living in Scotland or whatever. Could you imagine if he did that to any other ethnic minority, any other group of people? Like, I mean, it would it would obviously be called out for the racism that it is. Um, Do you remember when the first lockdown started, there was a whole load of SNP activists on the border with signs saying, go home English, you're not welcome, or something to that effect? Well, speaking of nutters shouting aimlessly at people crossing a border, to another group of nutters who shout aimlessly at people on Twitter, what was going on with Carol Codwallader this week, Paul? Well, it was an exclusive on Thursday morning. I got the briefing uh, on Wednesday night from sources not a million miles away from Aaron Banks that Carol Cadwallader was giving in on her long-running libel case. Now, we've been covering this for a month or for a month since the judge in the case said he'd had enough of all her prevarication and procrastination and her attempts to avoid. Uh, a day of judgment, 
and just gave her uh, 28 days a month to come up with some evidence that Aaron Banks was backed by the Russians and financed. And there was some financial involvement in the anti-Europe campaign. Um, we were pretty confident that wasn't true. The reason we were pretty confident that wasn't true was because the National Crime Agency, a body with the power to arrest, interview, get warrants, uh, track bank accounts, and uh, call on the assistance of um, foreign police forces, found that Aaron Banks had not taken a single penny from Russia. So since that very point, since that point, I've been pretty confident that Banks was telling the truth. He tells me that he offered uh, Carol Cadwalder a way out after the NCA um, ruling or finding that there was no further action required and he was innocent. And she didn't take it. So she has pushed it all the way until today when she was due to be in court at 10.30. Late last night, her lawyers changed their defence and they withdrew. And the phrase was they amended the defence of truth. They uh, withdrew the defence of truth, which effectively means in the most generous interpretation that uh, she had no evidence. And some of us say that when you admit that you haven't told the truth, what does that mean? You're lying. Now, um, she hasn't completely withdrawn her action. The judge gave her till January to make a case that she has a public interest defence. She is claiming that despite it not being true, despite she saying she had evidence, and then turning out she doesn't have evidence, she was acting in the public interest. Now, I'm pretty sure that she's campaigned against this information. Since she's been telling lies about Aaron Banks, that appears to me to be disinformation of her own. And there is no public interest defence for that. So I'll be very surprised if this works. Anyway, the judge um, demanded that she put £62,000 as a down payment down. My understanding is that uh, Aaron Banks' costs are in the region of a quarter of a million so far. Her costs will no doubt be similar. If she loses, she's going to have to pay the lot, I imagine. Uh, she's had all the chances she could have to withdraw it. Even today on Twitter, she was denying that she, she changed her from spending years accusing Aaron Banks of being backed by the Russians. She denied to Nigel Farage, who was taunting her, that she'd even said that. Yet the judge in a previous hearing ruled that's exactly what she said. So I don't know what's going on that. I think she's having a moment. Anyway, it's um, having a, a very moment. It's been... She's been having a moment since 2016, by the sounds of things. <laughs> <laughs> but well, she's raised she's raised half a million pounds. She's raised nearly 175,000 pounds for the Aaron Banks case. She's raised 300,000 pounds for her investigative journalism. Her investigative journalism is bollocks. She, she this is this this uh, absolute farce of accusing everyone of being in the pay of the Russians has resulted in her losing this case. It's untrue. And, uh, you know, she should... Actually, she should lose that Orwell Prize because of the three stories that she was cited as deserving to, to win the Orwell Prize award, 
three of them reference the Russia um, funding issue, which we now know she had no evidence for. It's quite extraordinary how these sort of great, grandiose awarding bodies were so whipped up into this mindset of, of Romaniac sentiment that literal brazen lies can be awarded with high journalistic honour because they reinforce the prejudices of the awarding body. It really speaks to a deep, deep problem that the, 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 that the establishment has really when it comes to dealing with and accepting uh, election or referendum results that they don't like. Um, Is this, speaking of accepting those results, go on. Matthew Goodwin, the academic, describes it as um, the Brexit referendum result inspired a need for magical thinking on the part of mm -hmm. Remainers. They could not believe that a majority of the people in this country would back Brexit. So they blamed it on everyone's racist, but that didn't work. They blamed it on uh, uh, Facebook and dirty tricks with digital advertising. And failing that, the Russians did it. It's, it's all magical thinking. It's amazing. All, it's, uh, it, is, it is amazing how when Barack Obama pioneers <laughs> micro-targeting in 2008, that that's an amazing, brilliant um, act of new politics from um, a, a centrist, centre-left um, presidential candidate. But then when someone on the right does exactly the same thing, now it's suddenly dark and nefarious and, and potentially evil. I mean, give me a break. It is absolute nonsense. But thankfully, all of that is past us because Brexit happened in January. And do you know what? We're leaving the uh, transition period at the end of this year too. And one of the more positive stories uh, this week that we ran with regards to that on Guido is that it looks like the Labour Party have finally found a position. After years of spinning around and trying to prevent um, the implementation of that democratic referendum, after years of setting up, I think it was six tests that Keir Starmer came up with that were designed to fail so that they could keep voting against implementing Brexit. Um, now they seem to have reconciled with potentially voting for a future trade agreement if one is agreed this year uh, between the UK and the EU. And this would be a, a big step for them, finally internalising the fact that the UK is, well, has left the EU and will be leaving its regulatory orbit as well. Um, so if, an, if a deal is agreed, and I think we, we basically think it's more likely than not that a deal will be agreed. Not impossible that one won't, but more likely than not one will. Um, it will be very satisfying to see the uh, the people who stirred up the big anti-Brexit movement, anti-democratic movement last year, hang their heads in shame and traipse through the voting lobbies alongside the Brexiteer right. That would be a great, great sight. And it looks like that's what Labour's going to do. Not, not, not with great joy, though. They're doing <laughs> it because they need to get closer to the views of their voters or their former voters. But they're not doing it out of uh, principle. Well, it's so, also it's also entirely pragmatic because if they were to vote against whatever deal is agreed in Brussels and Boris brings back, 
they wouldn't be voting against Brexit. They'd be voting for a no deal Brexit uh, or, you know, no, no future relationship. But it just reminds me of when Labour MEPs did just that. And they reveled in voting against the deal in the European Parliament. The MEPs voted against the deal. They thought they were rejecting Brexit, but actually Labour MEPs at the time were the only people voting for no deal. And it's it's um, great that there's now some great tactical uh, turnaround to realise that that's not a strategy that garners an outcome they want. Well, it is, of course, it's finally they're using the same logic that Theresa May tried to appeal to um, in the dying days of her administration. She famously stood at the dispatch box and shouted at the Labour Party that, you know, that if you don't, if you want to stop a no deal Brexit, the only way to stop a no deal Brexit is to vote for a deal. And yet the Labour Party and Keir Starmer had in their minds this, this sort of unicorn of just disregarding the largest electoral mandate in the history of this country and thinking they could just wish it away. Um, well, that worked out well for them in the general election. It, it worked out well for Theresa as well, because as, as we uh, revealed this week, she is of the firm belief that female leaders have a historic record of achieving the outcomes they want in comparison to male leaders. Uh, but we'll, we left that for the comment section to, to argue out. Right. Well, leaving aside the turmoil in the Tory party and anguish over former leaders, there's some anguish over a former leader of the Labour Party going on. Um, and, and certainly some um, idolisers of Jeremy Corbyn on the Labour NEC have been very, very angry this week. What was going on, Calgie? Um Well, the Labour NEC met to uh, elect a new chair, uh, and there had been some scuffles in the, the day before because there was talk that there was going to try and be a blocking of the uh, Fire Brigade's union candidate, who was the natural successor, apparently, is all internal Labour politics. Anyway, Ian Murray got blocked. The Corbyn Easter candidate got blocked. And instead, Margaret Beckett uh, is now the new chair of Labour's NEC. And the Corbynistas, uh, uh, as we've seen repeatedly, don't handle losing elections well. Uh, so what they decided to do was a walkout, uh, which in the era of Zoom means closing their laptops. And they, 13 of the hard left walked out of the, of the Zoom meeting, uh, cheer-led, we understood, by uh, site favourite, fan favourite Laura Pidcock, um, who, as a tactician for winning elections, is unbridled. Um, and uh, again, the Labour row marches on and, and marches out of the Zoom meeting. I don't understand the tactics of this. It, all that they achieved was they made it easier for the meeting to go on. And for Margaret, by all accounts, it was a much more harmonious and... Uh, uh, productive meeting than normal because they didn't have a load of the far left uh, bickering about minor details. The tactics of this, I don't understand. The strategic genius of this is non-existent. It's like when students go on a lecture strike. The only people who care, well, nobody cares. The lecturers think, oh, I've got the afternoon off and the students miss out on their education. 
it's the same with them. The left took left lost the opportunity to make any case whatsoever. So um, great, great strategy and uh, tactics by Laura Pidcock and Co. Well Amazing. Course, I just, I love the idea of Laura Pidcock just staring down the Labour centrists saying, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll stop voting. <laughs> I will press like, this. Brilliant. Go on, knock yourself down. out, Laura. <laughs> well, well, it wasn't, it wasn't all um, sunshine for the Labour Party uh, right this week or the centrists within the Labour Party this week because a row was brewing in the cabinet office and a normally very, very polite man, Michael Gove, has been really quite admonishing of his opposite number, Rachel Reeves, um, in a letter that he sent this week that we got our hands on um, before it was made public, um, which really uh, put to bed some of the questionable claims that the Labour Party have been making about all this outsourcing and, and particularly the use of a company called Serco. Um, for, for weeks and weeks, the Labour Party and particularly Rachel Reeves have been saying sack Serco and, and, and stop using these sort of outsourced things. Anyway, it turns out that just about every Labour council in the country uses Serco, not least of all the Labour council in Rachel Reeves' own constituency. Um, and she hasn't been telling them to sack Serco. Uh, similarly, uh, th there, was, there was criticism that Sakir Starmer raised at Prime Minister's Questions last week, where he said... Um, he, he he said that you're not using the normal process to tender to procure items like PPE. Now, that's because the normal process to tender to secure items like PPE takes 28 days to run uh, in, in the quickest possible sense. So really what, what Sakir was saying was, uh, why didn't you take longer to get PPE? Um, whereas just a few weeks before, he was saying you need to get PPE as quickly as you possibly can. Now, these Labour arguments are so clearly opportunistic and not evenly applied, especially when you look at the Labour administrations, whether they're in councils or in Wales, where the Labour Party seems to do just about everything that the Labour Party in Westminster criticises. Um, it was going to cast your mind back, because if you remember that period at the start where we desperate for PPE. I was speaking to a, a Downing Street advisor or someone who was working Downing Street at the time, who said every 9.15 meeting every day was about how can we get PPE? Where are we going to get PPE? And it wasn't about how much it's going to cost or any details of that. It was get it as fast as possible at all costs. You know, they were terrified that the nurses were going to run out of you know, that was just, it would just be a total disaster. So all this um, Captain Hindsight action problem. So why do we go for normal procedure? I'll tell you someone else who's our old friend Johnny and Moore is, you know, raising crowdfunding for his uh, campaign to go look into all these procedures. I mean, Johnny and Moore is the last person you'd want overseeing a procurement process. So I think I think they'll get nowhere. It was within the law to suspend suspend procurement rules because you're allowed to in an emergency. And if a pandemic isn't an emergency, what is? 
Well, it is it is worth looking um, at this letter if you if you have a spare moment, um, because it it is uh, Michael Gove, as I say, is a normally very, very polite man. And he does start off this letter in a very polite way. But but it is completely admonishing of what the Labour Party does in a, in a very skillful way. Um, but someone else who got, um, well, perhaps more outwardly angry this week was the Tory backbencher Charles Walker, one of the staunchest opponents of coronavirus authoritarian measures. Um, what, why did he get, get into such an, a, a rage this week, Calgary? Well, I'm pretty sure Charles Walker has been, you know, set to 100% anger for about two months now. I mean, I've never seen a clip uh, of him in the last month where he's not shouting at the government, but it was a very good performance. And uh, the long and short of what happened is that a, a elderly female anti-lockdown protester outside uh, or, or between Parliament and Portcullis House uh, was arrested and dragged to the police van. I think it was described spread eagle. Uh, and he was, you know, at, you know shouting, uh, what an outrage, what a disgrace. Uh, and he told a, an onlooker that he was going to raise it in Parliament. And true to his word, five minutes later was in Parliament, uh, raising the, the very issue and uh, saying Boris and, and Prince Patel need to come to the house straight away to to sort it out. Uh, Absolutely, let's have a listen to that now. You don't need to, you don't need to obey the orders of police officers. You must have others. What an outrage. What a disgrace. Point of order, Sir Charles Walker. Madam Deputy Speaker, I have just witnessed an elderly lady peacefully protesting with a handful of other people be arrested and carried spread eagle to a police van just outside the precinct of the House of Commons. This is a disgrace. This is un-British. It is unconstitutional. And this government our Prime Minister needs to end these injustices now. Madam Deputy Speaker, will you bring the Prime Minister and all the Home Secretary here today to sort this out? She was an old, old lady robbed of her dignity for having the courage to protest about having her fundamental rights and those of my constituents and others removed. Well, I thank um, the Honourable Gentleman for his uh, point of order. Um, I, shall, I can see that this is obviously an extremely um, distressing uh, situation. Um, I shall, of course, ensure that the Speaker is aware of, of um, the Honourable gentle, Gentleman's comments. But I also know that we have um, ministers here who I'm sure will ensure that his comments are fed back and his very strong views on the incident that happened. Thank you. But, uh, of course, uh, Boris and Pretty uh, never did come to the chamber, so uh, another time, hopefully, Sir Charles. <laughs> Maybe it's something that they could bring up in the new soon-to-be-happening um, 
lobby briefings that will be on television. Uh, Paul, can you talk us through what uh, we found out about these long-trailed lobby briefings this week? Long-trailed and long-campaigned for. Looking back in the archive, I think it's 10 years I've been campaigning to get lobby briefings, or the briefings rather, uh, televised. And they will be from January the 11th next year, when Allegra Stratton, who used to be on the telly on Newsnight and on Peston, so you'll probably recognise her, uh, will be delivering the first lobby briefings. Uh, they are going to be in the refurbed uh, Downing Street number nine, I think, uh, which is a former uh, Privy Council courtroom. So it should be um, the right place to make judgments. But I think it's going to be refurbed, modernised. I'm very intrigued to see how they are going to make it COVID secure. There are a couple of hundred um, lobby hacks. I think it would have to be a pretty big room and well divided to fit them all in. So I don't know how the queuing system is going to work or whether there's going to be a, a two-tier system for uh, journalists. I presume the broadcasters will be given priority. They usually are. Uh, but how the rest of... Um, the lobby uh, are treated, allowed in, would be intriguing. I'd be applying for a uh, pass so I can really attend um, and make my presence known. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> you you heard been... it here first. What, what a way! What a way to end the podcast. Well, from the 11th of January, there'll be these uh, televised briefings three days a week. And hopefully Paul will be sitting there um, when you'll be able to see um, the manifestation of Guido Fawkes on television, as well as Paul puts the government to the test. It's either me or Christian. It's either me or Christian. (laughs) Stock up on popcorn. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us for another episode of Guido Talks. Remember, if you are watching this on YouTube, to hit the subscribe button, click the notification bell to get this right in your notification panel every Friday. Um, If you're listening to us where you normally get your podcasts from, check us out on YouTube as well. Thank you once again for sticking with us and we'll see you next week. Bye.